0: Good morning, everyone. It's not good to mock a sick man, George. It's traditional at this time of year uh, to wish you all a happy new year. But for many of us, the new year was he- ushered in to the sound of sneezing and spluttering. And I have spent the last few days rocking back and forth in an armchair, clutching a lem slip, a slip, groaning with maudlin self-pity. So I hope you can make sense of the muffled sounds that emerge from my mouth for the next few minutes. Some time ago, the elders decided that we as a church should enter 2024 with a special focus on the subject of prayer. Prayer is so ubiquitous in church life that we can sometimes take it for granted. So the task given to me this morning is to use the scriptures to help you to regain a sense of wonder, to give you a fresh appreciation of prayer. I intend to make three points in this talk. Um, And to help us grasp the first one, let's read some verses from Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7, and we'll read verses 31 to 35. Mark 7, verse 31. Then Jesus left the vicinity of Tyre and went through Sidon, down to the Sea of Galilee and into the region of the Decapolis. There some people brought to him a man who was deaf and who could hardly talk, and they begged Jesus to place his hands on him. After he took him aside, away from the crowd, Jesus put his fingers into the man's ears, Then he spit and touched the man's tongue. He looked up to heaven and with a deep sigh said to him, Ephatha, which means be opened. At this, the man's ears were opened, his tongue was loosened, and he began to speak plainly. This miracle story is about a man who was deaf and dumb. And it seems from Mark's account that this healing required the Lord Jesus to exercise a lot of effort and power. Regenerating the ability to listen and speak, to communicate, seems to have been even more difficult than the regeneration of a man's sense of sight. The ability to communicate goes to the heart of what it means to be human. Mark is making this point that at the spiritual level, human beings are deaf and dumb. We have lost the ability to communicate with our Creator. The early chapters of Genesis explain how we fell into this pitiable state. Our first parents sinned and consequently died spiritually. No longer could they walk in fellowship with God in the Garden of Eden. Because of their sin, Adam and Eve were banished from the Garden and lived in separation from God. C.S. Lewis uh, once wrote a book called Out of the Silent Planet. And that title is a perfect fit for our Earth. In terms of communication between heaven and Earth, Earth was the silent planet. Men worshiped dumb idols instead of their creator. So no praise, gratitude, no intercession or adoration ascended from earth to heaven. We were the silent planet. But then came that amazing moment when the transcendent God entered his own universe as a man, the man Jesus Christ. And one of his first moves was to teach us to pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. He opened up the beautiful possibility that once again men and women and boys and girls could communicate with their creator. They could address him as their father. Because of Jesus' death and resurrection, the members of the early church were able to communicate with heaven once more. Out of the silent planet came the voices recorded in Acts chapter 4. When they heard of Peter and John's release, Luke tells us, the early church raised their voices together in prayer to God. In a few short years, prayers in Jesus' name ascended from Antioch and Thessalonica and Galatia, then on into Philippi and Rome. The sound of praying saints got louder and louder as churches formed all over the ancient world. In terms of blessing, in times of persecution, the prayers of the saints ascended into heaven. Centuries passed, and the sound of prayer began to be heard in Britain and France and Russia then into Africa, the Americas, and Asia. The silent planet had become a global cacophony of sound as young and old believers prayed to their Father in Heaven. My first point is that prayer is the sound of victory. My father lived until he was in his mid-90s. And he spent his final year in a Christian retirement home. He was given a lovely room. He was well cared for by the staff but my poor dad was unhappy. Like many of his generation, he was a fiercely independent man, someone who detested the infirmities and indignities that often attend old age. And he told me just before he died that he felt useless. All I can do is lie here and pray, he said. I would have loved him even for a few minutes to capture a glimpse of what happens when an elderly saint lying in a bed in a nursing home turns to prayer because heaven stands waiting the vast spiritual resources and angelic powers we sometimes glimpse in scripture stand waiting ready to jump into action when the saints pray every time you pray you are declaring the victory that Christ won on the cross Satan has done his best to strike you deaf and dumb Look at what he's done to this culture. Young adults riven with anxiety because they feel alienated from the world, at the mercy of forces too dumb even to know you exist. To whom can the atheist turn? Think of teenagers who have drunk from the poisoned well of atheism. To whom can they express gratitude? To whom can they express their fears and longings? The, this culture manufactures the idol of a self-created identity, but that idol is deaf and dumb. As Isaiah says, when you cry out for help, let your collection of idols save you. The wind will carry all of them. A mere breath will blow them away. It's a biblical principle, you know, that we become like the object of our worship. And so it is inevitable that the idols of our culture reduce young women to silent, Plasticized objects on Instagram but not so with you. Christ has spoken the word ifatha into your ear. Be opened, he commands. And so now you can experience the heart of personhood, the ability to communicate once more with your creator. Prayer is the sound of victory. A global chorus of gratitude, worship and intercession rises from earth to heaven. For our second point, and it's our main point, let's turn to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter four, verses 14 to 16. Hebrews four, starting at verse 14. Just three verses. Therefore, since we have a great high priest that the title of our second point might sound uninteresting. But I hope to show you something of the wonder of prayer uh, by making the point that prayer brings us into the presence of God. We're going to take time to step through these three verses because they explain how sinful, mortal creatures like us can enter into the very presence of God. If you had walked into the temple at Jerusalem uh, during the time of the Lord Jesus... You would have been allowed to enter into the court of the gentiles i think that's that's where the money changers were driven from by christ basically anybody who could could walk through uh, the outer court but the temple itself was a bit like a russian doll the inner court then was the holy place and then at the very center there was the holy of holies the tabernacle had a pretty similar structure there was an outer meeting area the holy place and then the holy of holies where the ark of the covenant rested. And the ark is described in Exodus as the throne on which rested the presence of God. Now, that three level structure might help us make sense of what it means to enter into God's presence. We usually speak of heaven as being a single place, but Hebrew tells us that the tabernacle and the temple is a picture of spiritual realities, so we should take its structure seriously. Sometimes scripture just talks of the heavenlies, the realm of the spiritual powers and authorities that we cannot see. Even Satan himself, who's described as the prince of the power of the air, has access to this level. So we might think of the heavenlies as, if you like, the outer court of the Gentiles. It's the realm where spiritual powers and authorities engage with each other and we get a hint of that in Job chapter 1, uh, the interaction between Satan and God. But when we talk of heaven really we're generally talking about the higher levels where God and his angels dwell. In 2nd Corinthians, Paul talks about being caught up to the third heaven where he was given this profound revelation directly from God. Now I mentioned these somewhat obscure passages of scripture because they help us better understand what actually went on when Christ ascended. Turn with me for a moment to Psalm 24. Um, many of you will know that Psalms, uh, the, the trio of Psalms 22, 23, and 24, um, form a story that speak of firstly Christ on the cross, uh, then his time in the tomb in the valley of the shadow of death, and then in Psalm 24 we get the story of Christ's resurrection and ascension. Verse three of that psalm sets the scene when it asks, who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? And the answer is given from verse seven onwards, which we now read. Lift up your heads, you gates. Be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, you gates. Lift them up, you ancient doors that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord Almighty, he is the King of glory. Now you noticed obviously in that Psalm that twice we get to hear the gatekeepers challenge the one who would enter into heaven itself, into the holy place and then into the most holy place. Satan had tried that once, but had got himself thrown out into the outer court, but now The ascended Christ comes, a risen, glorified man approaches the gates, and the gates open. And I think this is the thought behind verse 14 of Hebrews chapter 4. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. The faith we profess is faith in Jesus Christ. And the wonderful thing is that Jesus Christ has been raised to the very pinnacle of the universe right into the presence of God. So he has authority, he has complete and unfettered access to God. So he can intercede effectively on our behalf. So verse 14 teaches us that Christ can bring us to God. But the next verse teaches the other side of that truth. Christ can bring us to God. You and me with all our weaknesses and our problems I know some Christians who think that when they enter into God's presence, they must put on the best show possible. But that is to misunderstand prayer. Christ is our great high priest, says Hebrews. He is the man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. He knows how it feels to be lonely, to be hungry, to be in anguish. He's felt the dagger of betrayal pierce his heart. He knows how rejection feels. He has stood by gravesides and sick beds. He knows the pain of unrequited love. We do not have a high priest who is unable to feel sympathy for our weaknesses. Everyone in this room faces difficult tests in life. Sometimes suffering comes in the form of a sudden catastrophe, a phone call about a fatal car accident that numbed feeling that comes over you when a doctor says gently, I'm afraid that the news is serious. But other suffering comes in the form of a continual burden. A Christian parent has to watch their son or daughter walk away from their Christian inheritance. They struggle with that awful feeling of helplessness as they see their precious child make disastrous choices in life. Or maybe a teenager has to watch as her parents' marriage Breaks down into the bitterness of a divorce. She sometimes wonders if any of the love she experienced from them was real. The divorce has fractured her very sense of self and then sometimes suffering comes because of our own sin. A couple has lost all intimacy because of a husband's addiction to pornography. Trust and openness have broken down and so the days are spent in unhappy silence. All of us face difficult tests in life. But these are the very burdens that we should take into God's presence. God is no cold Pharisee, withdrawing himself from the weak and the sinful. He gives strength to the weak. He is the friend of sinners. So if you're feeling this morning weak and confused and tired, or if you're feeling guilty, Christ, your high priest's deepest instinct, is to stand with you. I say this with all reverence, but you can stand before him and surface all your frustration and anger and hurt. Why have you allowed all this to happen to me? You can ask him directly. And your great high priest will remind you that he knows how you feel. He has stood where you stand. So verses 14 and 15 teach us that Christ can take us into God's presence. But what shall we find there? Any thoughtful person who has considered seriously the idea of being in God's presence must have felt a degree of nervousness. But verse 16 dissipates that feeling immediately because we are told that Christ brings us to the throne of grace. I love that term. In these three verses, we have watched Christ ascend through the spiritual realm into the throne room of God. He has brought us to the very source of authority, the wellspring of all that is real and true. We have arrived at the very center, door after door has opened, and we have entered into the throne room itself. Given what Christ has revealed about God, maybe it isn't all that surprising that at the very wellspring of reality, we find grace. Some years ago, a TV series was produced here in Northern Ireland. It was so hideously immoral that I won't even mention its name. But apparently a central artifact in the story is called the Iron Throne. And a metal craftsman who lives near me was commissioned to build the so-called Iron Throne. It represents ultimate power in the series. The Iron Throne is constructed from the swords of vanquished kings, and it's a cruel symbol of raw power. In many ways, the kingdoms of this world all have their own iron throne. Their history is an endless, pointless struggle for power. And how amazing, in contrast, to know that at the very centre of reality, at the pinnacle of the universe, there is no iron throne. There is the throne of grace. Our God is no despot. He is a great fountainhead of love and kindness and grace. His rule is gracious. It isn't dictatorial or cold. Every judgment, every decision emerges from divine grace. And here's the thing. Once I know that secret, once I know that the throne of God is the throne of grace, then I can come with all my failures, my weakness, right into his very presence. Later on in Hebrews, we discover... That this is the place where our guilt and shame can also be dealt with cleansing the guilty conscience from sin dealing not only with the objective problem of guilt but with subjective feelings of feeling guilty hebrews chapter 10 verse 22 says let us draw near to god with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience Satan is sometimes called the great accuser. But here's the point. He isn't allowed anywhere near the throne of grace. He cannot see or hear anything that goes on in that throne room. But you can emerge from it with the burden of guilt lifted from your shoulders. You can know yourself once again as a son or daughter of the Most High. Because in the gentle atmosphere of that throne room, you confessed your sin to a loving and gracious God. Your great high priest who stands beside you reminds his father and you that the price for that sin has been paid by his blood. And so you can once again receive forgiveness and healing and cleansing and acceptance. So we thought about two aspects of prayer. Prayer is the sound of victory and prayer brings us into the presence of God. I want to finish with a more practical point. I once again face the risk of saying something that might sound prosaic but it could be truly transformational for us as a church fellowship if only we grasped it. Our final point is this, prayer is how we help each other. One of the really interesting features of prayers in the New Testament is that most of them are prayers made by someone on behalf of someone else now, sometimes, of course, Paul and even the Lord Jesus will pray about their own circumstances. But the vast majority of their prayers are intercessions made on behalf of others. Praying for each other is one of our main jobs in church. I remember once listening, sitting beside a middle-aged woman who was in the middle of a storm. Wave after wave of suffering had hit her family. To be honest, Jim, she said to me, I just can't pray at the moment. That's perfectly okay, okay, I said. That's my job for now. But praying on behalf of others raises an important question. For what exactly should we pray? Most of the time, if we're being honest, we ask God to protect others from suffering, to restore their health, or to extricate them from some horrible trial. But that sort of prayer is rarely found in the Bible. We are better to pray that our loved ones and our friends pass a trial of faith, come through it, rather than pray that they escape from it. Think of the Lord's statement in John 12. He's considering his own death. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, for it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. So, maybe a good health check on your prayer life is to count up the number of times you ask God to rescue somebody from suffering and contrast it with the number of times you ask Him to equip them to come through the test. Now, that is a tough principle to implement when praying for other members of the church, but it is even more difficult when praying for our families. Parents need enormous wisdom when praying for their children. The natural biological instinct is to pray that the children will never experience a day of pain or sadness. Any loving parent would do almost anything to protect their child from suffering. But that parental embrace can become so tight that it gives no space for the wisdom of God to be taken into account. Young believers often think, That faith is about trusting in God's love or God's power. I believe that God loves me and that he's able to save me from all harm. Well, there's a truth to that, of course. But mature faith is a trust in God's wisdom. It is a faith that believes that God is competent with our lives. That he knows what he's doing at times when life appears to be utterly chaotic. And so those of you who are parents must accomplish that almost impossible task. Trust in God's wisdom for the lives of your children. A couple of months ago, I had the privilege of uh, preaching from the first two chapters of Exodus from this lecture. Uh, At that stage, I was not standing at death's door. And uh, we considered the heartbreaking moment when Moses' parents placed their infant son in a wicker basket and floated him down the river Nile. They entrusted their child to God in the most biblical way they could imagine by creating a little mini ark for him. And every parent in the room empathized with that heart wrenching moment. Now, it struck me after I had preached, because all my best points come to me when I'm driving home, that Moses' age wasn't the crucial point in the story. A mum and dad watching their daughter pack up the car and head off to student accommodation must feel as if they are watching their child float down the river into the unknown. I guess my point is that parents might find it helpful to take a step back from their situation and ask themselves how they might cooperate with God in the eternal development of their offspring. A really good role model here is Hannah from the book of 1 Samuel. In her first prayer, Hannah is full of natural anguish and despair. She just prayed out of bitterness of soul. But after Samuel is born, she gets more perspective. and She has a much more spiritual understanding of her role as a parent. And she says, I prayed for this child and the Lord has granted me what I asked of him. So now I give him to the Lord for his whole life he will be given over to the Lord. Now, I am acutely conscious that I'm speaking of emotions that I have never personally experienced. So the only thing I can do is to hold up Moses' parents, Ammon and Jochebed, and Hannah, as examples of parents who made space for the wisdom of God in their family prayers. So we're done, or I'm done anyway. Prayer is the sound of victory. Prayer brings us into the presence of God and prayer is how we help each other. We'll have a final hymn and then I shall close in prayer.